our podcast, Queer Religion. Where everyday people share their stories about where their sexual identity and their spirituality overlap. Kind of like a conversation between friends. Maybe over tea, like a boba tea. Ooh, with rainbows. Unicorns. And other fancy flags. So you've shared, you know, up to this point, you've been making the choice, right? Like that you're not going to act on this and it's, you know, really creating your entire life around not being gay um, and being seen, you know, as this upstanding example within your community. Could you tell us about the moment where those things intersected, right? Where like you weren't able or maybe willing to make that choice anymore and then how that impacted this whole community and you know picture of self that you had absolutely um so I in high school um I loved to write English was sort of always my strongest subject um I was a huge reader um from an early early age and through high school and I think lived such an insulated life in literature sort of gave me an escape of sorts um (laughs) I still remember reading 100 Years of Solitude by Marquez, I think my senior year. And there's a scene where someone paints like a face on her lover's penis. And I remember just reading that and being very aroused and very <laughs> like horrified by my arousal and feeling like I should just stop reading this book now. But it was so good that I, of course, continued. Um <laughs> And so literature was, literature and writing was sort of my first love. And so when I was thinking about college, um, the school that I ended up settling on was a small liberal, liberal arts school in Galesburg, Illinois, called Knox College. They had sort of a flagship creative writing program that was nearly 50 years old. And it was their biggest major, which I think is maybe not true of any other college where there's at any given time, 150 to 200 creative writing majors at that school. So they just had a really vibrant program and they gave me a lot of scholarship money. Um, And so one of the great things about being so righteous (laughs) was my parents who had sort of a firm hand on most of our lives did not have any hand in the college search for me. They were sort of like, we trust you to make the right decision and we will support you with whatever you choose. <laughs> I think it was just them not having time because they both were full-time working, not wanting to be involved. <laughs> and so I, I went there for writing, but I also knew half of the schools I was applying to were Christian colleges. And there was something deep within me that was sort of very sure that if I did not radically change my situation, if I did not radically change my community, um, I really think I may have killed myself. Um, Mm. I was that unhappy. I was that interior, interiorly conflicted. And Mm. so it was sort of my body, which I so distrusted, which pulled me so far away from home. And So I got to Knox College, still like (laughs) very determined to be a Christian in the way that I had always been, even though knowing it wasn't a Christian school. Um, 
but I didn't know this about Knox, but I guess I did on some level. It was if my home community was sort of as far right as one could be, Knox was probably as far left as any place could be ever. <laughs> and oh, wow. so there were a, a huge, vibrant queer population on campus. Um, and that was really the first time where I ever had seen other gay people, um, mm -hmm. certainly had ever seen trans people. And I was hesitant, you know, I was like, well, that's fine for them, but they're going to hell, you know, like <laughs> I, I remember being asked by one of my cross country teammates, like what they were doing was they knew me well, they knew I was gay. They could tell um, they were perceptive, <laughs> um, but so they were sort of probing. They were like, what do you think about gay people? And I recited the theology that I knew. I'm like, you know, I think we should love them, but if they don't change their, how they live, they're going to go to hell. <laughs> and my friends were just sort of like, huh, okay. <laughs> um, and so that, it's been so long since I told this story. It's so weird to revisit it. But my first trimester, we had 10-week tri trimesters. The play that the drama department put on was this play called Next Fall. I knew nothing about it, but I went to see it with my roommate. And Next Fall was about two men, one who is a fundamentalist Christian who's grappling with his sexuality and falls in love with a man and his love destroys his family. <laughs> wow. And so I remember watching this play and when they kissed, getting an erection um, and feeling again, like I thought I was over this. Like I mm -hmm. thought mm. I was past it. Like, why is this happening again? And that was the first night where I went back to my dorm and I, I articulated to myself, I can't choose against this. I have tried and tried and tried, and it is more persistent than my own persistence to choose against it. Mm -hmm. And that recognition in myself was pretty terrifying, but also I wouldn't say like there was nothing triumphant about it. I was just afraid. Um, I was afraid what this would mean for my relationship to my family, what it would mean to my eternal destination, et cetera, et cetera. And so I did not tell anyone about this until months later, where again, thank goodness I had good friends. My roommate who I went to next fall with, he was joining a fraternity. And he was like, Josh, I met this guy in this frat who I think you'd really connect with him. He's like, really talked about religion. <laughs> and really why my friend was setting me up with him was because he was gay <laughs> and, and had a very similar background to me. And so I remember going to lunch with him. He was a senior, pretty hot. Um, and he was just sort of asking about my life. And I had been praying for months. Um, that someone, you know, that like God would give me a sign mm -hmm. for who I should tell and how I should tell someone. And, you know, he, his brother <laughs> went to the U S coast guard Academy. And so did my older brother. And like, when we found that connection, I was like, oh, it's the sign. <laughs> <laughs> so remember I was eating captain crunch 
had a spoon that was just sort of quivering in between my mouth and the bowl. And I told him I was gay. And it was the hardest, I mean, words had not been harder to come out of my mouth. Like I had to spit them out. It took every bit of effort in me. And he was so gracious. His response was one, thank you for telling me. Two, I'm not gonna tell anyone else about this. And three, you're in a really good place for that. Um, and he gave me a hug. I never really talked to him again, but it enabled me to start sharing that with people that I was closer to. And across the board, everyone I told at Knox was like, we know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was sort of again and again, sort of like, why didn't you tell me? But also very affirmed because I was still so unstable in my identity at that point that the fact that other people were able to perceive it um, just sort of solidified my own beliefs. Um, at that stage, though, I was still very much believing that, okay, I was gay, but the research that I did online told me, like, you can be gay as a Christian. Um, that's something that, you know, you can't choose. It just happens. But you can choose whether or not to have sex. You can be celibate. And that is the choice you should take. And so for about three months, I was dead set on that. And I think what really happened was once I was able to be honest about that part of myself, it sort of unraveled everything that I believed. Um, I was able to see for the first time that what I had considered faith was not faith whatsoever. It was fear. Um, it was fear of being ostracized from the community, fear of being ostracized from my family. God was not God, but I think an idol that was sort of the voracious, violent community. And so I think like very quickly and I think largely aided by the community I was around, you know, like my beliefs sort of just crumbled around me and I found myself in uncertainty, which was terrifying, but somewhat liberating as well. Um, in the sense that I had always sort of felt that the Christianity that I grew up in, it, it, it never moved me. It didn't sort of spark mm. my idea of what beauty is and can be. It didn't help me live as a kinder, better person. It didn't show me how to love. It always felt like an ill fit, but I never allowed myself to acknowledge that because I needed to perform it to survive. Mm -hmm. And so being in a different context enabled me to sort of just shed that form of Christianity like an old coat. At the same time, of course, and even now, there are theologies that are intricately wrapped around my most interior part of myself. You know, it's, it's the theology and it's the place that founded me, created me, those languages, the words, the discourse. But I think that sort of began my wrangling with and against and thinking into sort of different theological and spiritual spaces. Are there any resources that you use to kind of, I, I think maybe a, 
because I've been having this discussion lately, it, your, your lens has to shift, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this paradigm on paradigm on which you've shelved all these beliefs that you've held and that you've abided by either out of fear of losing salvation or fear of losing community, or you felt like it was just the right thing to do. And you have this whole belief set. And like you said, it suddenly just crumbles when you recognize this is no longer possible. And so it takes your whole shelf down. And then you were talking about how you were able to kind of, you know, work through some of those to rebuild um, into, and that, and that you still hold on to, to some of those theologies. Are there any things that you kind of pegged in place to help start rebuilding? Are there things that you hang on to, to kind of mm-hmm. focus in on um, reshaping how you can more healthfully view the world for as far as the, the spiritual world goes? Yeah, an, another great question. Um, I did want to say it, it, it's not so much that I still believe in the theologies. It's just that they are unfortunately mm-hmm. embedded right. within me. You know, I think like old fears, sort of old relationships to my body and desire mm-hmm. still sort of flare their ugly heads occasionally. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say sort of profoundly, I have left most, if not all of it. I I think, and this is hard because my parents still believe it. And I think it's built their lives and I think they're earnest people, Mm -hmm. but I, I sort of, for me, that Christianity was bankrupt spiritually. Um, and so I think when you're talking about resources that I used, I was just around the right people, you know, uh, my coming out coincided with my falling in love with poetry. Um, and my first poetry teacher was a poet named Gina Franco, who was an oblate. I don't even know if that's the word, but she was associated with a Catholic church in, mm. in Galesburg and oblate something. It doesn't matter. I, um, know. I would help you, but I'm not Catholic either. So <laughs> yeah. no history of that. Um, we'll, we'll, have, we'll find someone. They'll help us out. We'll get messages. And yes. like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> she had a special relationship with a Catholic church and she was sort of a mystical Christian, a mystical Catholic, where that's what she was most interested in. And what she loved about Christianity was the sort of mystical beauty, the sort of poetry at the heart of things, the paradox at the heart of things. So I think meeting her was the first time I had met a Christian whose faith did not stem from fear and moral certainty, but instead flowed from a place of beauty and artfulness. And that was just so transformative where I had meetings with her where, you know, the bizarre thing about it is she back 30 years ago worked at the same resort as my father in Tucson, Arizona. (laughs) Um, My dad knew who she was. He was like, yeah, she was really hot. We all loved her. she dated my high school basketball teacher. And so it was sort of like in our first meeting, we discovered these things about each other, this sort of link and kinship. And I felt very safe with her and was able to come out to her and share sort of context about my home and what I was afraid of. And she was really the first person who was like, Josh, like Christianity has it wrong on that Mm -hmm. note. Like, and there are Christians who believe other things. She's like, it is okay to be gay. And so hearing that was like a balm, but also just sort of falling in love with poetry, which requires an attentiveness to the world 
both the outside world and the interior world. And so for the first time, instead of being so hamstrung and muffled by my fear, I was able to sort of unlock my gaze outward beyond my fears and start seeing the world and also seeing sort of the parts of myself that I'd buried for so long. So she was an incredible resource for me and is still a good friend. Um, I would say the other sort of most important thing was the summer that I was internshipping in Chicago. Um, I was working at this organization called the Taproot Foundation. Late in my time there, I came out to my supervisor and told her a little bit about my story. And she was like, Josh, you have to meet with my friend, Justin. Like, I think you'd really, you'd really get along with him. And so I met with her friend, Justin, who was also gay, came from a household very much like mine. And just sort of offhand, he suggested I read this theologian called James Allison. Um, he's a Roman Catholic priest who at the time was defrocked because he was openly gay and openly outspoken against the Catholic Church's teachings on gayness and queerness. And I, I read that theology and I would say that theology saved my life. Um, he specifically writes for gay Christian or Catholic people and his sort of project is unbinding the gay Christian conscience in his own language. And he's very cerebral. It's hard. It's, it's, it's theology. Deep, deep theology yeah. <laughs> it's deep. But what I didn't realize that I needed was for a while when I came out, I did the angry atheist thing where I was sort of like, I, this, this thing wounded me so fiercely. And so I, I want nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but reading this theology so much more powerfully uprooted the toxic theologies that I had imbibed because it was just like he was reading the Bible in the way that I would read texts for literature classes. You know, he was sort of breathing life into these stories, which had been used to oppress me and others, and instead showing how his vision of Christianity was not the atonement theory that I mentioned earlier, but instead was there is an anthropological reality, which is that human beings form their togetherness at the expense of innocent uh, scapegoats. And so the best way for a community to sort of be together is to kill someone and share that sort of responsibility, sort of the sacrifice. And he sort of sees the atonement theory following that structure of this sacrifice that brings unity, God having to sacrifice his son to quell some bloodlust. What he thinks Jesus actually did was inhabit the space of the scapegoat, inhabit the space of the one being excommunicated and killed at the expense of, not at the expense, he was the one being scapegoated so that the group could be together. But what is radical about what Christ did is he's the scapegoat who doesn't let us get away with our own violence. He comes back to life and shows us that this is something we do. We excommunicate the innocent other. We Mm -hmm. other people so that we can be together as a group. Um, And so his sort of vision of Christianity is one in which God likes us so much that he himself reveals to us our violence so that we can learn to live more creatively and learn to be together 
in such a way that doesn't destroy other individual people who who are different right so that we're not we're like because we're trying to create a group where there's the least amount of conflict and everyone's so similar it has the least chance and so we get rid of the other that's different Mm -hmm. then we can have this cohesive set but that's damaging to like you have to disregard people as humans yeah i think that's a great a great nuance that you've you've brought up is that yeah it had to be someone different but also similar enough um that the sort of sacrifice means something you know and so when i looked at that sort of shape and looked at the sort of community that i came from it unlocked everything you know the ways in which we looked at the non-believers and completely made scapegoats of the homosexuals of secular people of trans people of all sorts of groups to make us feel more righteous, to make mm-hmm. us feel holy. And so reading James Allison specifically, it, it replaced poisonous theology. And rather than just becoming anti-religion and anti-Christian, it sort of enabled me to think about Christianity and participate in Christianity that wasn't violent in the ways that I knew in the ways that wounded me and that wounded so many others. Um, so I would say that was sort of the most important text that tilted me in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that resource. That's yeah. So thank you again so much for sharing that, that resource and, and expressing how that gave you a new lens to look at your experience with, you know, Christianity, um, that it doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? You don't have to walk away necessarily, uh, that there are other perspectives out there. Um, so I'm wondering, where does that take you now, right? Where are you now in that conflict between your faith and, and your sexual identity? You know, um, what does it look like for you? Yeah, uh, a great question with a complicated answer. I think my sort of spiritual trajectory has been one of bumbling and surprise. <laughs> um, but I think after reading James Allison in that that summer where I was in Chicago, the again, sort of every time I would tell my story to someone, someone would sort of give me a suggestion. And I told the head of my program what I'm sort of sharing with you. And he was like, Josh, you have to go to my church. I was like, I hadn't been to church in like two years. So I was already rolling my eyes, but he was like, it's three blocks away from Boys Town in Chicago. 60% of the congregation identifies as queer in some way. The pastor is a gay man whose husband attends. Like, I think you'd really like it. And you know, I was intrigued. And so it was an ELCA Lutheran church, which is an affirming form of a a gay affirming Lutheran denomination. And I went there and just seeing same sex couples like touching in, in a religious space. Um, And also the liturgy, I I came from the non-denominational sphere where there is no liturgy or it's, it's not a liturgy that has any sort of historical credence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I found the way that the body would be incorporated into the service, the candles, the iconography, the, the hymns. I liked it. You know, I'm someone, I'm, I'm sort of a, a whore for beauty and I, I did find <laughs> it beautiful. Um, and so I was very moved by that experience. I, I went once, it was very late in my time in Chicago, would have gone more if I could. 
when I got back to Galesburg, which was very rural Illinois, I found an ELCA church and was sort of a regular attender for two and a half, three years. Um, and in those three years, you know, I got very, I got very involved to the degree where I was an assistant minister, where I was giving people communion, which <laughs> was, you know, and it would be the sort of situation where like, on Saturday night, I'd sometimes drive out to Peoria and go to the gay club and drive home at four in the morning. And then at nine in the morning was giving people communion. I, <laughs> I felt very <laughs> conflicted about my life, but also felt very assured in the sense that I was just sort of the vessel for communion. Um, if there's something efficacious in it, it has nothing to do with me. And I think what I loved about giving communion was just sort of the human element of pressing a piece of bread into mostly white 70 plus year old rural Galesburg people. Um, and just sort of never believing that I could have such a role in any sort of Christian space as an openly gay person, it, it, it was a really sort of trans, transformational experience for me. Um, but fast forward to, I went to grad school, I moved to Raleigh, I moved away from Galesburg and I attended an ELCA Lutheran church for a week and just sort of felt sick to my stomach. It was a very progressive church. The, the pastor was a woman, which is something I had never experienced and I loved it. Um, but even though her sermon was progressive, even though her sermon was, you know, not like the sermons I grew up hearing, the, just the act of hearing a sermon made me feel bad, made me feel wounded, made me feel some sort of guilt. And I think sort of uprooting myself from Galesburg, I was able to articulate to myself for the first time, like, I don't want to hear sermons. Mm -hmm. I am so tired of any sort of Christian discourse. Like, I, I, I guess I sort of thought I was more healed than I was, or I think there was some sort of religious compulsion, possibly some sort of guilt compulsion that was putting me in that Lutheran church. Um, and so I stopped going um, and on a whim decided to attend a Quaker meeting <laughs> instead of the Lutheran church. And so the Quaker sort of meeting was different than any sort of religious ceremony I'd been a part of where the structure of the Quaker worship is they get together on a Sunday, 10 o'clock in the morning hits, and everyone lapses into a prayer, prayerful meditative silence for an hour. There is no pastor. There is no hierarchy whatsoever. There are just members. And in that hour, there might be some comments. Um, if you're not supposed to come with comments prepared, but for them, if the spirit leads you to speak, you speak, no one is allowed to respond to it. So someone would say something, it would ebb back into silence. Maybe someone would interrupt it again, then silence. So most of that hour is just sort of unbroken silence, save for the shuffling of the person next to you, someone blowing their nose, someone coughing. Um, and 
I meditation had been important to me for years of just coming to terms with sort of the voracious, nefarious ways in which my mind would spiral. Um, but I'd never meditated with others before. And there was something so moving and so sustaining to me in being in a room where you're enclosed in your own thoughts, but at the same time, you're held in community because everyone else is enclosed in their own thoughts with you. And so I felt like this sort of profound awareness of this is what I've been looking for, a religious space that upholds the need for community and also the need for autonomy, the need for interiority. Um, so the hour breaks and then there's sort of brief announcements and people drink coffee and tea and you go on your way. And so I think for the rest of my time in Raleigh, I became a Quaker um, and frankly felt so much more fulfilled than any of my other religious experiences before. And I think the reason why is there was no expectation in the Quakers that you'd believe anything. Um, mm. It is loosely Christian. And I would say most of the Quakers that I knew believed in Christ to some degree, but there were atheists in the room. The leader, one of the like main people of the Raleigh Quakers is also the head of like the Raleigh Druids. <laughs> so it was a really eclectic sort of spiritual melting pot. And with silence being sort of the primary form of togetherness, there was just no expectation that you'd hold to any theologies. There's no expectations that you'd believe anything. And I think because of the excess of poisonous theology that I encountered in my childhood, there was something so profoundly healing in just that silence. It was like a balm. It was soothing. Um, it would sort of center me for the week and move me forward. Um, when the pandemic hit, the churches closed, the Quaker meeting house closed. And so I haven't been back. And a large part of that is because I have been going through a year-long chronic back disorder, a disability where I'm, I can't sit, <laughs> so I wouldn't be able to attend even if I could. Um, but I think, you know, if my health ever gets in order, I'd like to continue being a Quaker. Um, just because there's no pressure to believe any such thing, but it does sort of nudge me forward in belief at the same time. Um, I think maybe the last thing I'll say is this back disorder has been the most devastating thing that has ever happened in my life. Um, I've been a hyper-physical person, um, very dependent on my body. When I finally came to terms with my body, it's become my most profound source of joy and groundedness to be able to dance, to be able to just sink into sex with another person. These were the things that made my life at the time worth living and they have been stripped away utterly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think in this period of extreme despair, extreme depression, extreme disability, it sort of reopened faith in me. You know, it sort of reopened a prayerfulness where there's times where I'm in so much pain that all I can do is pray. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I, I, I think 
the Quakers and Gina all are into Christian mysticism and I sort of am too. And there's this Christian mystic named Simone Weil who a lot of poets love. And she says something to the effect of the absence of God is the presence of God. Whenever I would read that, I would say, well, that is unintelligible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this experience of my life has given me an access to sort of understanding a comment like that, at least in the sense of when my life sort of came to a halt, to a pause, when this sort of disability sort of just put me on the bed and only on the bed, I realized that I'd been working ceaselessly at this diner. I'd been filling my life with so much noise and so much activity that I had no interior life. I had no sort of spiritual life. I felt just like a crusty piece of bread. Mm. And I was experiencing, I think, in that restlessness, the complete absence of God, the complete absence of beauty, the complete absence of interior. And so I think when things finally paused, when I had to quit my job to really try to full-time recover, I was confronted with that lack. I was confronted with that absence of meaning and the absence of God in that moment, again, sort of pushed me towards presence. I needed hope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I needed to have faith beyond the pain of the day to day. And so I think that's sort of where I'm currently at is every day is difficult. Every day I sort of feel like I want to give up every day. I grieve what I'm not able to do anymore. Mm -hmm. But I do think something positive to have come of this is sort of a reawakening of faith and faith, not in any creed or any sort of theological sense, but just faith in the pure belief of sort of a radical otherness that can wring goodness out of terrible situations. Um, so if I have faith in anything, it's sort of just a reckless faith in that call it God, if you want, but sort of a benevolent otherness, um, that can make something of treacherous situations. Um, so that's sort of where I've landed. Um, and that God, whatever that God is, doesn't care what I do with my sexuality, doesn't care who I fuck. (laughs) Um, so that's nice. (laughs) There's a lot less, there's a lot less conflict in, in those, how, in how those things overlap. For sure. Definitely a lot of difference in that, um, personal internal angst, right? Like it's a lot more peaceful and a lot more, uh, joyful. Yeah. I think is a good way to put that. Um, Thank you for sharing that. I do have one question uh, as a follow-up. Do you feel like, given that your family and you both, both grew up very uh, entrenched and in, in active in religious communities, schools, institutions, is there anything that you wish people working in those fields uh, knew as far as the queer community or as far as spirituality versus sexuality, where they overlap? Is there anything that you would hope that they could grasp or understand or 
Oh, plenty of things. <laughs> um, so where, where to begin? I, I think, I think what I would want them to know is the ways in which their purity rhetoric, where I think why I heard a sermon equating women's bodies to water balloons and men's bodies to needles jabbing into those water balloons was because there is an extreme paranoia in that community about having sex before marriage, about having babies out of wedlock. And we can't, we can't advocate for condoms because then we'd be advocating for sex. And so we have to scare them into celibacy. Mm -hmm. But the emphasis is we have to scare them. And I think those sort of tactics, that sort of vision of desire as something that is intrinsically corrupt and that needs to be barricaded against, it might seem like you're trying to help and that you're trying to nudge people towards what you think is holiness. But for closeted queer people, it's genuinely dangerous. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't actively suicidal, but I did not want my life mm -hmm. all through middle school, all through high school. I hated my body. And that is a hatred that I am daily trying to unlearn. Um, it's still complicates the way that I can touch the people that I love, even friends. Um, and so I think, I think just what I would like them to know is the ways in which theology of the body and purity rhetoric does the opposite of what it's trying to do. It's trying to preserve and make holy the body, but I think it creates individuals who are horrified and terrified by their body and learn to equate body and desire with evil. And that is something that once you learn it, it's very difficult to untangle. Mm -hmm. um, it imprints a life for a lifetime. Um, so that would just sort of be my main thing is theology is powerful. So just be mindful of the ways in which what you're saying might be internalized by very confused hormonal <laughs> individuals. <laughs> Already stressed by many things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the body should be a friend at that time. It should be sort of a home base, not sort of something that you're trapped in a fight with. Mm -hmm. A place that you can settle into and be comfortable and not constantly at odds. Absolutely. Oh, I think for me, I, those are, you know, the questions that I had. Um, is there anything that you want to cover that we haven't covered? Well, I think Heather has one last question for you. I do. It's our most favorite question. Very important. We're talking boba tea. What is your go-to order for boba tea? What's your favorite? My favorite is a tarot boba smoothie or not smoothie Ooh. like shake like I don't want it to just be like flimsy liquid like I want it to be sort of like a milkshake substance yes substance yes thickness oh, and tarot too you mm -hmm. love it here in Hawaii I just love it. the color is so beautiful right yeah purple with that yeah very very Wait, do I have my colors right? Purple? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like an excellent choice, Josh. Hopefully someday we'll all get to share one together. That would be, awesome. be lovely. Thank um, you so much. There is a chance, you know, if this body ever gets an order, Keppa has many times said, visit me in Hawaii. 
And so if so, I would love to meet you both in person. That'd be yeah. fantastic. Yep. Awesome. Well, right. thank you so much, especially, you know, your patience and willingness to, to participate with everything that you're going through. You know, we really appreciate you and, and your openness with your story. Of course. I mean, I appreciate what you all are doing. Um, it's, I think the vacuum of silence is part of what made my home community so wounding. And so I think sort of piercing it with stories is sort of the best thing that can happen. It's, it, you know, stories saved me and I know they can be really powerful for others. It's the same for Thank myself. You. Yeah. A lot of stories, a shout out to my, the podcast I listened to for quite a while and still do uh, is coming out stories by Lauren and Nicole. And it's just people's stories of coming out. And so hopefully stories where, you know, you're talking about your spirituality and your sexuality can, can give people that same, like, Oh, I'm not alone. Right. Like, mm -hmm. or at least there's other ways of looking at the world when you grow up in one lens. Um, especially when it feels, you know, so, so um, at odds with who you, who you do find yourself to be, whether that's, you know, sexuality or, or any kind of other, I think it, I think it matters. So hopefully we're hoping that it reaches a lot of people. So we're grateful that you took the time to share. So. Of course. So I'm really, I'm glad you asked me. All right. Well, that's it. We're going to sign off for the day. You can find us at our website, which is uh, www.queerreligionpodcast.com or you can email us at queerreligionpodcast at gmail.com so you can send us some questions over and we'll get those connected to Josh or to ourselves and we'd be happy to hear from you but until next time bye bye